welcome to another special guest episode of Bad Gays, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gays and queer folks in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, historian, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. There's a kind of conversation I used to have when working in offices with large gay populations. The conversation happened frequently enough that I began to be able to predict how it might unfold. An older gay male colleague, typically white and trim and successful, would set off on a lament about the impossible meanness and pettiness about gay culture, would speak from the heart about loneliness and feelings of inadequacy. Then, strangely, the conversation would turn to the idea, expressed with varying degrees of confidence and anger, that there was a subgroup of gays who had the wrong goals, too much sex with too many people, going to drag bars on a Tuesday night. These sorts were holding the good ones back from finally merging into the mundane, and it was suggested more fulfilling, every day of bourgeois life. Maybe I would suggest the root of these colleagues' unhappiness wasn't evil sex radicals or unreconstructed sissies, but the impossible situation contemporary gays find ourselves in, the promise of acceptance and tolerance if we force ourselves into relationship models that often chafe, the way that rights of access to institutions like military service and marriage have divided us from queer and trans sisters and siblings, the gentrification of our community spaces out of major urban centers, our own complicity if we are white, and I am, and these men always were, in these same processes of gentrification, and the ingrained misogyny that leads to a drive towards hypermasculinity and thinness. No, the colleague would insist, it's just that bitchy mean gay culture. It's toxic. In the community, we have a name for these people, A-gays. They are at least normatively white. They enforce the social rules of a certain kind of gay space, implicitly, and sometimes explicitly, excluding all other kinds of gays and all other kinds of queer people who don't fit their strange standards. These are the donors and board members of the big gay nonprofits, the setters of the mainstream gay agenda. Sarah Schulman has written of a gentrification of the mind of queer movements in the 1990s in Benjamin Shepard, an assimilationist split. Under the pressure of the AIDS epidemic, with a generation of leaders dead, some people turned to radical and radically inclusive activism. Others, people who had been in what Mike Signorile once called the closets of power, rich, white, gay, and lesbian couples who distanced themselves from any kind of activism that threatened their social positions by destroying their ability to remain respectfully discreet. These people swept in in the early 1990s and started what we now think of as the gay rights movement, organizations like the Human Rights Campaign. And they still won't be associated with mass organizing or endorse the kinds of comprehensive social and economic justice agendas required to end, rather than just name, the physical and economic violence that is habitually done to queer folks by individuals in the state. This is how you get a democratic presidential LGBT town hall where no black trans women are allowed to ask questions and where they are removed by event security for protesting that silence. So this is how I want to frame our conversation today, which is about someone that I sometimes think was created by scientists in the lab to embody this kind of gay man and his countless faults, failings, and collaborations with power and with evil. Yes, this is the Mayor Pete episode. I think about these gays when I think about the particular complicity of and terrible politics of Pete Buttigieg, and also about his seemingly profound discomfort with being gay. Consider the report last week that the campaign canceled an event at a Rhode Island gay bar because they wouldn't remove their dancer poles for the night. The bar wasn't insisting on having people dance on the poles all night, but the campaign insisted that just the existence of that kind of object 
an object reminding people of drag and sex work and go-go boys and all those inconvenient parts of being gay made their literal presence in the space impossible. Now, I couldn't possibly have this conversation alone or do this alone. My head would explode and uh, it wouldn't be uh, right to only have one voice, I think. So I've invited two really fantastic special guests to join me for this conversation and I want to introduce you to them now. Uh, first off, Mac Folks, who was born in Jamaica, raised in New York City, has lived here in Berlin for many years and has been a foundational member of our queer nightlife scene. And after working for many years in that scene and in fashion, he's moved on to pursue a career as an artist, focusing his practice on race and culture. He consistently says some very smart and sharp things, and I'm very happy to have him with us. Hazen, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And secondly, I want to introduce Dr. Edna Bonhomme. Edna is a Haitian-American scholar, writer, and art worker who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, where she is working on a book manuscript about sanitary imperialism and traditional medicine and collaborating with decolonial artists, writers, and activists. Let me tell you, this girl is everywhere all the time doing all the things in amazing ways. Uh, she completed her PhD at Princeton University in 2017 and has written for Africa as a Country, The Nation, and The Baffler. And she also hosts the brilliant podcast Decolonization in Action, which you can find on your podcast app when you finish listening to this show and which also very graciously is letting us use their equipment to record this episode. So welcome, Edna, and thank you for that. Thank you for having me, and I really enjoy listening to Bad Gaze. <laughs> <laughs> Put up Bad Gaze. <laughs> Well, uh, I think this is a bad gay that we don't love so much. Uh, yeah. No, we, the podcast really. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not so much. <laughs> there are, uh, and it's funny, I mean, there are some people that we profile that we end up having, we end up developing a kind of strange affection for as mm. the show goes on there. Yeah, as we research the episode, their motives become maybe easier to understand or we start to become less. And this, as I was working on uh, kind of putting together the outline for this conversation, I just found myself getting angrier and angrier and more distance oh. from this guy and angrier. So I figured I would just start by asking the two of you uh, kind of how Mayor Pete as a concept uh, <laughs> first entered into your kind of perception and what your uh what your kind of first impressions were and have been and then we can kind of move through his biography and talk about some of the stuff in more detail i mean i think it's funny that you say mayor pete is a concept because i think that's exactly what he is he doesn't come across as a as a real person to me i mean he comes off as a sort of like a, a check box of like check 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 you know and i remember the first time that i saw him i thought to myself i know that girl you know what I mean? I went to Cornell with that girl. You know, you know what I mean? I was just like, and it was just like, he was a kid in the front of the room that was raising his hand and, you know, trying, you know, had all the information, but actually didn't really bring anything else to the conversation. You know, he was able to sort of like repeat things. I try these days to act more on instinct than anything else. And I think as a, as a, a sentient being, I, I try to get back to that feeling just like, of being able to look at people and, and you know, funny that you mentioned I was in Queer Nightlife. And one of the things that that, I was the doorman, and what that job enabled me to do was to be able to like slice somebody up and they snap decisions like that. And so it's a, it's a skill that you honed after a while because, you know, you have to make a, a really good decision. And I remember the first time I saw him and the deal breaker, it was like Harvard, 
Rhodes Scholar, and then it was that picture of him with the gun in Afghanistan. And I was like, what the fuck? Can we say fuck on here? Oh, we can say anything we want. No, no, no. We, we mark all our you know, episodes and, and, as explicit. I mean, it, was, it was really one of those Truly, this is before I even know that he, before I even knew that he didn't come out until he was, he was thirty three or something like that. I thought, what is a Harvard Rhodes Scholar doing with a gun in Afghanistan? A completely disavowed, you know, engagement. I was like, what is he trying to do there? And I just saw like this white dude, this white gay dude, like picked up a gun. To go aim it at brown people. And that really annoyed me. And then the way that he would frame that, I remember he's, he's spoken about gun control sometimes and sort of framed, you know, the weapons that I used in Afghanistan don't belong on our streets. Well, did they belong in Afghanistan right. either? Exactly. They're on Af <laughs> Afghani streets, right? Yeah. That, these are the things that I don't really sort of understand when, when people like him have these conversations. It's like the same thing when people say, like, well, Hillary's a feminist. And I'm just like, really? When she voted for that war in Iraq, it's just like, didn't she think that there were women there? You know, so I don't really understand the disconnect. Like, they see the things through the lens of where they're from, but they somehow can't apply those same filters to other places. Yeah, in many ways, what you're describing is that the kind of homo nationalism, what Jasper Poir describes as homo nationalism, where people who might be queer, in the global north, places like the United States, Europe, who want to align themselves with the ruling class, more so with the mm -hmm. queer, gay folk in the global south, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, etc., that it, it causes a situation in which they rather fulfill the legacy of imperialism than to actually be in solidarity with uh, working class, poor, and global south queer folk. And, and that, that is a contradiction that uh, Mayor Pete is living through. But it's <laughs> <laughs> like embodying. To answer your question with respect to when did I first come across him, so I've only known about him as a concept or as a figure, because yeah. <laughs> I like I what you said, as a concept for about a year when I read Sarah Marcus's article in The Nation describing Pete not from his, not just from his political lens, but from his father. And like, how does he come to be? The son of a, a Notre, University of Notre Dame professor. And then some of the things that you, you said and re with reference to him being a Rhodes Scholar, et cetera. And his proximity to a certain kind of upper class elitist politics and, and basically carrying the torch of uh, neoliberalism is very much uh, something that is at the heels of 30 years of academia moving to the, uh, mm -hmm. the right, politics moving to the right. We haven't really won in the U.S. context, at least, with respect to increasing uh, wages more broadly. And so there's a way in which a certain kind of assimilation and res what I would call respectability politics mm -hmm. within the LGBT community has also been the thing to help create him as an individual. For me, as I dug deeper into who this person is, mayor of a town of like 100,000 people, barely, which barely 100,000 people, <laughs> um, and it's just to go, so when one goes beyond and to think about, okay, Indiana, that's the fourth largest city in Indiana, and yeah. he goes from thinking, I want to be the president of an entire nation of 330 million people mm -hmm. somehow, without fully understanding the dynamics, and then even beyond that, with South Bend, it's I also because I'm a historian, I'm like oh, going to this like black hole. 
the people who were there before white settlers were there were uh, the Miami tribe, indigenous tribe. And that matters a lot to me because I'm from Miami. <laughs> and I was trying to get a sense, like, what is the percentage of Native people there? Less than 1%. What is the percentage of Black folk? 20%, 60% white. How does he address the the constituency that is a, that doesn't reflect him and his demographic? And and that is something that I'm I'm very suspicious of. He doesn't at all, I think, because we're going to get into um, later into the show when looking at his record as mayor, um, what there is of it. Um, so now might be a good time to kind of bring the conversation into his biography. Um, one funny note just before we begin is that, um, and I'll also say the, to our listeners that as always, the sources that we relied on are going to be available in the show notes and linked and organized. But um, an article by Ashley Feinberg on Slate revealed that he actually was regularly editing his own Wikipedia page to kind of add new biographic <laughs> updates and edit. So yeah, just, you know, yeah, he is. As you know, Mac uh, said earlier, you know, I saw him and I knew her. That was the one at the front of the class. And Edna said, you know, this middle-class family. So this is a kid who's born um, in... South Bend, Indiana, um, which is a deindustrializing Rust Belt city. He does not grow up in the deindustrializing parts. He grows up in the kind of leafy suburban parts, the kind of part of town that I actually myself uh, grew up in. Um, it was, according to the AP, I quote, a running joke in his U.S. history class at St. Joseph High School. Um, would he use his own last name when he ran for president or would he change it so that it would be better? And I think that tells you a lot. Um, he was named high school valedictorian, of course, voted senior class president, of course, and chosen most likely to be U.S. president, of course. As I mentioned, uh, he grew up in this sort of leafy suburban part of South Bend, which is the cluster of neighborhoods around the University of Notre Dame, where his parents had uh, academic jobs, and he was educated consistently at private schools, which were uh, much whiter and wealthier, of course, than the surrounding community. Um, his father, interestingly enough, Edna, you mentioned he's an academic, and his father's actually a leftist academic of some of some renown. Was a translator uh, of Gramsci, I believe, the prison notebooks. Prison notebooks. Yeah, which, I mean, those of us who spent the time English the English version, the translator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those of us who spent time around uh, academia know that the fact that people work on radical topics does not necessarily mean that they live those lives. Or that their children will inherit radical politics. Right. Yeah. The father of Kamala Harris, um, I'm forgetting his name now, but was also a, um, was at UC Berkeley, right? Berkeley, yeah. Yeah. Um, and her school was one, or she was one of the first uh, people to help integrate uh, the Berkeley public school system. Yeah. But you know, it's fascinating when you go to, of course, you know, I went to university a very, very long time ago, but there is this, when you're in that kind of place and you're up on the hill, like so I'm the current now, it's like, big, you know, it's like up on the hill. And then you've got this, this very, very wide gap between who goes to the university and who lives in the town, right? Mm -hmm. And they call them townies. And what's fascinating is, I mean, I guess he actually lived there, but most of the people that live there are transient, right? So they come and stay for a couple of years and then they leave, you know? So, it's this kind of thing when they never really connect with mm -hmm. what's going on. And there's always this kind of, um, you know, hands off. So I don't even know if you're even in that kind of place 
you already set up this this us them. I mean, not mm-hmm. that this us them isn't everywhere, you know, but I think it's super reinforced in this kind of, you know, this place of academia because people walk around academia like that anyway. Right? I mean, you went to Columbia, right? So you have the same experience here in Harlem, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a great divide between um, those who want to align themselves with the elite or perhaps uh, create the foundations to be part of Wall Street or work as an investment banker of some sort versus those who have been disenfranchised and continue to be so in um, neighborhoods outside of mm-hmm. Yale, Harvard, um, Duke University, and, and Columbia. And I actually think that divide is so central to American liberal politics. I mean, the university expert, the kind of figure of the university expert um, as early as the progressive era in the early 20th century, and then certainly in the in the 1960s and 1970s with the kind of reorientation of the Democratic Party around highly educated um, knowledge workers or skills workers, um, the university expert or the professor becomes the kind of subject, central subject of American liberal politics. And then there are poor and working people who are only sort of victims potentially to that politics, who's, who are spoken of and over, but never particularly heard from, and are certainly not invited to be part of any kind of collective liberation. And so I think it's interesting that Pete is like from birth, literally, and then goes on, as we'll see, to be embedded in these kind of institutions that are kind of reproducing these contradictions at, that are at the center of American liberal politics. There is, of course, there's a liberalism within universities or a liberalism in the U.S. politics as a whole <coughs> that can be problematic for actually having true liberation or addressing the divisions based on race, class, etc. At the same time, there is a history for universities being the site of uh, resistance. If we think about the May 68 student protests that were not just happening in places like New York or Berkeley, but were happening in Paris as well. Mm-hmm. And it was in an international movement and the, the site of the university as a place where you could gather, where you could potentially use the resources to occupy a building. And at Columbia, during the 68 kind of uprisings by students, they renamed some of the buildings uh, to reflect Malcolm X, to reflect, and this was like black students on campus, SDS, etc. And in some cases, they also united with Harlem uh, residents to stop the formation of a gym, called, and they were against Jim Crow. Uh, yeah. Mark Nason talks yeah. about, Mark Nason, and a uh, historian, has written a little bit about this, um, as well as others who looked at particularly the history of uh, universities and student struggles being a situation in the 60s for for liberation. How that looks like today is a bit different, and we see vestiges of that through things like the Black Lives Matter movement, Occupy movement, but it, it isn't necessarily the case that learning or having the space for intellectual struggle that negates the possibility. Oh, not at all. I didn't mean to make that point. My biggest issue with that whole thing is that for so many people within those circles, these things are just academic exercises. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, they're just academic exercises and they're just arguing a point, they're debating a point. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there's theory and then there's really, you know, there are lived lives on the ground. Mm -hmm. And somehow... There's this disconnect because you realize when you're speaking to them, oh, this is just a topic of conversation for them, like the weather. Well, certainly, and if you're translating Gramsci and then sending your kid to private school, then, you know. <laughs> I mean, Gramsci, I was just like, I was like, I, I didn't really, really do my research, but my 
girl, my best girlfriend, when she did her PhD, I remember she coming home and talking about um, cultural hegemony all the time. And I was just like, I was like, that's Gramsci, right? Like, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, and it came to me, it was just like, well, Pete is the, <laughs> is the absolute you know, definition of cultural hegemony. So just uh, to move forward a little bit and obviously keep talking about these themes. So he goes to Harvard, of course, um, and a little bit about his time there that I think speaks to some of both what Edna was saying about the possibility for the university being this kind of site of resistance and struggle um, and also to what Mac was saying about the ways in which it often isn't. Um, so this is a quote. Um, and this was excerpted in an article for Current Affairs that was written by Nathan Robinson. But this is a quote from Buttigieg's a memoir about his life. Um, the quote is, does this. So in quote, in April 2001, a student group called the Progressive Student Labor Movement took over the offices of the university's president, demanding a living wage for Harvard janitors and food workers. That spring, a daily diversion on the way to class was to see which national figure Cornell West or Ted Kennedy one day, John Kerry or Robert Reich another, had turned up to encourage the protesters. Striding past the protesters on my way to a pizza and politics session with a journalist like Matt Bai or a governor like Howard Dean, I did not guess that the students poised to have the greatest near-term impact were not the social justice warriors at the protests, but a few mostly apolitical geeks who were quietly at work in Kirkland House." Unquote. And so, as Nathan Robinson points out, this is a very strange passage because, first of all, he's sort of diminishing the protesters as social justice warriors. But second, he's not even, he doesn't, at no point does it cross his mind, like, I could join this. Like, I could be part of this. Like, oh, this God. is something that I should, you know, this is something that I should join in because if I'm a student at this elite school and I come from this elite background, the people who work here should be making a living goddamn wage. Um, they don't even see those things. But that's, some no, students, I mean, some students. I mean, some there. students, absolutely. Yeah. But I think. But this type a, of person this, doesn't see these people. This, this, this class of people. My issue with a lot of these people is they actually don't believe in anything, right? They actually don't have any true convictions and they don't have any true sort of like philosophies that they really live by. They've kind of like, you know, it's just kind of like relativism, right? They just kind of like straddle the line. And whichever way is the wind blowing, you know, they're going to go over here and they're going to go over there, you know. And that is really, that is super, super problematic, you know, particularly for myself as, you know, as a black person, you know, that people have been, we talk about racism as this kind of like, oh, this theoretical thing. And like, oh, we, we don't do that, but just no one ever fixes it. Right? Mm -hmm. No one ever fixes it. No one ever talks about it. No one ever talks about it like outright. You know, I, I did a reading last week and, and I was in this room full of white people and I called them white people and everybody went, <gasps> and you, I heard the, the air in the room went, <gasps> and I was just like, um, yeah, you don't have a problem saying Latin music or black culture. So why should I have a problem saying white, you, you know, white people? And so when I think that how that transpires in the end is that White people tend to see themselves as individuals, mm. you know, in many, many, many ways. So joining groups tends to be a specific kind of thing, you know. It's they're joining the groups that's going to get them to the next place, not necessarily joining the group because this is what I really mm -hmm. 
Well, one thing I would say is uh, I I can definitely uh, appreciate the, what you're describing, which is that there's a lack of solidarity on the part of some people to see the struggles of working class Black and Latinx and Indigenous folks, especially as they're fighting for a living wage. And we see a kind of national struggle within the U.S. context for the fight for 15, mostly led by Black and Latinx women. And with respect to living wages on campuses, particularly elite universities that could absolutely afford to have pay people higher wages, Harvard, number one endowment in the world for universities, then Yale and then Princeton. And the last time I checked since I went to Princeton, uh, their endowment was about $27 billion, uh, which is higher than the GDP of Yemen, an entire country, um, and beyond an entire country. And so this, these are the inequalities that persist where wealth and capital is maintained by these elite universities. And the endowment is separate from other kinds of funds. As someone who comes from a working class background, my father's a sanitation worker, my mom a a janitor at a hospital and a lot of the women in my family are either domestic workers, janitors, migrants from the Caribbean, from Haiti specifically. And the the fight for a living wage, especially since the economic crisis is 2008, has been for a fight for unionization. So on some of these college campuses, uh, unions such as SEIU, Service Employee International Union, have been doing that work. And so often campuses, university campuses want to attack that. What has helped is when students are in solidarity, say we support these uh, workers, or in some cases, if the university tries to prevent people from joining the union, they put a rat outside of the the, the university to indicate their dismay. So the, the solidarity actions are absolutely key. And it sounds like Pete wasn't doing that. <laughs> When he well, was actively, <laughs> actively walking, like not even considering that that was something that you would do. Like that's what the social justice warriors mm. do. But I'm the person who's going to run the world. Well, I'm, I'm know, the one who's going to be. Well, why would he? He went to Harvard and Oxford, and he didn't come out. You know how many queens are there? I mean, and, like real talk, right? What do they, what do they say? Yeah, one in four, maybe more. Right. <laughs> so it's not exactly that you're living in some sort of bubble. And some, and my personal, personal, personal problem, because I think, you know, I was born in 1965. I moved to America in 1970. So it was like right post, right after what I, you know, the projects of liberation, right? So like civil rights, women's rights, gay rights. And then, you know, we have this sort of like um, the gay liberation movement. And then <laughs> the gay liberation movement. And then we have the gay rights movement. And my mother was a very, 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 instinctual person. And my mother was, I was sitting with my mother like in the mid-90s sometime and like she was having a real problem with the gay rights movement. And I remember like even at that time I really couldn't put pieces of the puzzle together right? because I just thought to myself, marriage in the military? Like of all the things, like, <laughs> like, like those the two most oppressive institutions known to mankind, like that's what we're aligning ourselves with? Like it just didn't, and I, did, I completely did not have the language at, at that period of time to really discuss this thing, but it was really, it just hit me in the wrong way. And I remember the mother, they were always sort of referring back to the civil rights, and the civil rights movement, and referring back, and my mother said, quote, trust me, they're going to leverage our struggle to get what they want, and then they're going to cut it. Yep. And I was just like, I was stunned, you know, when she said it because, you know, I'm living, a, I'm living an intersectional life, right? And I'm sort of like black and gay. And I did not want to believe that about 
you know, my gay brothers, because, you know, I'd also, we'd also just come out of the, you know, the act up moment and, you know, the AIDS and really just struggling for survival. And, you know, and I really thought we were in this together and I didn't really want to believe them. And when I see them now, it's just like, wow, my mother was right. One. <laughs> and then, she, I mean, and she's not alive anymore, but I wish she was still here. So I could go like, wow, how did you call that? Yeah, and what you're pointing to is just how divisive certain people within the gay and community are, or that there are different gay communities. One, and growing up in being growing up in Miami, there were those of us who were black and queer, and particularly from the working class. And depending on who came out, some of the, my friends ended up on the streets and had to hustle to survive. And there are others mm -hmm. who would come from Europe and because it's Miami, go to the beach, spend all this money and part of an elite structure. And you're right to say, and it was around this time, early 2000s, that people were fighting in the in Miami-Dade County. It was this group called Save Day to promote marriage, which, which is totally fine. But how do you deal with that when there's the reality of trans women being murdered when people are home, like gay people, uh, mm -hmm. youth were, were homeless. And the one thing of joy that, well, not one, but there are many places of joy um, in the Miami context for young uh, queer people of color uh, was gay prom. <laughs> there was this group mm -hmm. called Pride Lines that allowed the space for gay prom. And I, I remember was my junior year and senior year helping to, to um, uh, organize that. And it was one of the most fulfilling things to do because it was for us, by us, mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed mm -hmm. to older gays with mm -hmm. money telling us what we should think and feel. And, you know, because the club is actually a microcosm, right? Mm -hmm of society. And if you're paying attention, you can really read lots of things. So, of course, at the beginning, before I moved to Berlin, you know, in New York at the Paradise Garage and at Sound Factory, you know, basically sort of like queer, black and brown spaces, right? It was all about dancing. And we accepted everyone as long as they were all about dancing. You know what I mean? It wasn't about cruising. It wasn't about anything. It was all about the music and it was all about the dancing. And then at some point, when the Chelsea Queen arrived on the scene in the late 80s, right? The Chelsea Queen, like the buffed up ones, like the, these A-gays that we're talking about, they all of a sudden rolled into the club. And this is what they did. They danced in a circle with their backs to all of us. And that in hindsight, you know, of course I noticed it and it felt wrong, but in hindsight, what it says to me, they're telling me who they are and what their relationship is with me with their body language. And that in some way was an announcement yes. of what was going to happen to these politics. I mean, it, and I just, just to, to listeners, I mean, I think we have a fair number of queer listeners who are kind of kind of instinctively get it, but just for people who might not get why we keep coming back to talking about like nightlife and dancing and like queer spaces and this show, and it, it might feel like a digression from like running through the biography of this person that we're trying to profile, I really want to tell you it isn't because mm -hmm. these spaces and these kinds of experiences that we're talking about are so foundational. And then you get this kind of generation of white gays who it's like the next step. So you start by turning your backs on everybody else in the space, and then you just absent yourself from the space. Well, and you, just you know, there's totally so many, there's so many more of them 
They yeah. come and then they take over the space. You take over the space. And then suddenly you feel uncomfortable in the space that you built. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have to leave. And this is, I mean, that's just gentrification. Yeah. It is. Right? It's just like, that's all it is. And then they absent themselves from the space entirely and mm-hmm. become part of a political structure and a social structure in which the idea of even there being a queer space, yeah. a mixed queer space, is kind of unthinkable. And that's where you get this presidential campaign Showing up also, to do an event at what they know is a gay bar, and mm-hmm. they just literally cannot exactly, deal with right. the fact that there's a pole that no one's exactly, going to be dancing exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. But that's like a exactly. reminder that maybe there was a you know one of the nasty ones we don't like because was here. they're in these spaces. They're not even really in these spaces, mm-hmm. really taking part. Mm-hmm. They're just in these spaces, occupying space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To move on with the bio a little bit briefly, if mm-hmm. I could, um, when uh, Mayor Pete leaves Harvard, he becomes a Rhodes Scholar, of course. Um, and that's as one does. Yes. Um, and I want to quote. So uh, one of the episodes of the show that we've done that people uh, talk about the most and say they like the most is the episode we did about Andrew Sullivan. And I want to quote Andrew Sullivan on Rhodes Scholars, because if even Andrew Sullivan says this, then really, you know what you're talking about. Quote. Road scholars possess none of the charms of the aristocracy and all of the debilities, fecklessness, excessive concern that peasants be aware of their achievement, and a certain hemophilia of character. They are the apotheosis of the hustling apple polisher, the resume-obsessed goody-goody, the epitome of the blue-chip nincompoop, end quote. Et voila. Well, when they said, I know that girl, right? And yeah. that's, that's the description of that girl. Um, I love mm-hmm. it because that's the ultimate read. <laughs> and, and, and I, and I would someone, say that as someone who loves yeah. the, you know, a good hot take, that it also goes to show because as you had mentioned previously, it sounds like Pete either edits or has someone on his team editing his Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. which shows a certain kind of hubris and an aspirational characteristic that we see based off of his, of his resume. And this is something that should be, I guess, questioned. Yeah. And so until now, we've been talking a lot about things that have been... I think if you were listening to the episode up until now and you were not already a Mayor Pete skeptic, mm-hmm. um, you might think that this conversation had been fairly or somewhat aesthetic or judgmental or kind of harping on things or beginning from this kind of place of suspicion. And here is where I want to start getting into some of the things that he has done and things that he involve, has involved himself with that I think make the politics make a lot more sense and that I think have informed a lot of our skepticism about some of these uh, life decisions and some of these kinds of ways of being in the world that we've been talking about. Um, I want to do that by, again, quoting from uh, Mayor Pete's memoir about uh, finishing up his Rhodes Scholarship. He says, quote... He's already got a memoir? Yes. He was like mayor of like a, a two-bit town and he's got a memoir? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a running for president <laughs> book. You know, they're, they're all called... Oh, right, you got to have that, right? The one check, on, check, check, the check, one on Veep was called mm-hmm. Some New Beginnings, Our got Next it, American it, Journey. It, you know, they're all it, called it. something like that. Oh, but anyway, yeah. so here's the quote. Uh, the book is called Shortest Way Home. Yeah. Um, quote... Knowing that I would head back to America meant that there was less at stake for me in the grade, but I took pride in it, of course, bragging about the grade he got in his thesis, um, even while sensing that the time had come to learn what wasn't on the page and get an education in the real world, oh my God. which is why I went to McKinsey. That's the real world? Well, it's a kind of real world. So McKinsey, uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, is one of the largest consulting firms in the world. And... Um, it serves more than 2,000 institutions. It is consulted with 90 of the top 100 corporations worldwide. And if there has been a 
merger, a monopoly, a rise of advertising, a rising executive pay package, um, a plant automation, a corporate restructuring, or a mass layoff, McKinsey has probably had something to do with it. Um, McKinsey is one of the kind of firms that has the purest allegiance to capital and its power. Um, McKinsey is and always has been very willing to work with uh, despotic governments and corrupt business empires. Um, they recently had a contract with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE in the U.S., to assist, quote, enforcement and removal operations, organizational transformation, and integrated consulting services. So that means that McKinsey is consulting on making uh, enforcement and removal operations more efficient, i.e. making it easier to deport families from the United States. Yeah, I would say that McKinsey is very much a broker of global capitalism, of what you describe to be having intimate relationships with governments that have authoritarian regimes, as well as doing the work of uh, furthering, exploiting people, and and fine-tuning that at the level of this consulting multinational body. I'm sure there are some people who are who want to get rid of their debt, and at, when McKinsey presents himself as having an opportunity maybe to travel, to work across uh, different private and public sectors, that it could be quite appealing and provide financial security. At the same time, there are people who are part of the ruling class who enter into this space, mm -hmm. and it provides them the, the cushion and the ability to then justify mm -hmm. why they should end up being the head of uh, the Clinton Foundation or why they should be uh, part of someone's board. And so, Or the um, mayor of South Bend, the or treasurer the of Indiana, of as, as Pete said. And, I, and yeah. the idea that this is the real world is something, Mac, that you sort of responded to because it's, again, it's, I mean, it's, it's a real world for sure. I mean, it's a world that I think all three of us here wish we didn't live in, but and are trying to change and, and want to change. But it, it's, there's a description here that I just want to get on the, on the air here by um, a former McKinsey analyst named Anand uh, Giridharadas, who's just written a book called Winners Take All about this kind of corporate world of people who think that they're doing good and that world. And he, so he describes this as market world. And he says, quote, this is an ascendant power elite that is defined by the concurrent drives to do well and do good to change the world while also profiting from the status quo. These elites believe and promote the idea that social change should be pursued principally through the free market and voluntary action, that it should be supervised by the winners of capitalism and their allies and not be antagonistic to their needs, and that the beneficiaries of the status quo should play a leading role in the status quo's reform. Wow. Those good guys become the elite now. And so you don't get a pass. You know, you don't get a pass. And where you really don't get a pass for me is when you're somebody like Mayor Pete. Because three weeks ago, he would have told me that his struggle was equal to my struggle. Right? And he would have lined himself like, oh, no, you can't discriminate against me. And then once he's moved into the power position, flip him to the other side. You know? And I take that super duper personally, because it's just like, oh, I can't trust you, right? Because like my mother said, you got what you want, and so you're good, right? Because I think also this thing, particularly with white gays, is I think the only thing that they were actually pissed off about was that they were not allowed the privilege that they thought they rightfully um, deserved. That's it. There was no, 
there was no solidarity or like, they just used the argument, you know, everybody that comes after the civil rights, you know, civil rights uses that argument to base their argument on. But the reality is they don't care. It's an argument, like you said, it's an academic exercise. Like when they chose marriage in the military, that was a decision, right? That was a calculated decision to have them appeal to the most, you know, the broadest and the most middle class and come across as the most, you know. And it was also a decision that was made by people who, and I think this is a way in which Mayor Pete is really connected to this history of this particular kind of gay organize, I mean, I hesitate to call it organizing, but kind of gay rights demand um, is that like Mayor Pete, these are people who for much of their life used their privilege to shield themselves from having to kind of come out in any kind of public way. So in the 1970s, there's a gay liberation movement in San Francisco, and there's also plenty of rich queens in nice houses and nice condos who live on Knob Hill, who, you know, everyone in the social circle knows you know, you read Armistead Maupin Tales of the City, right? There's all these people, you know, maybe everybody, everybody knows that, you know, Bill and Mark live together, but, you know, Bill and Mark also have an opera subscription and Bill and Mark are friends with the mayor and Bill and Mark aren't like those, you know, dirty queens in the street or whatever. And then when so many people start dying, um, there's this moment of enforced solidarity where AIDS doesn't discriminate. I mean, access to healthcare is throughout the crisis of, a major kind of differential between people's experiences, but especially in the early years when there's no treatment um, and no cure, it comes for it came to, it came to a point of it, life I or think, death. So all these people are for all the other, these people are kind of forced out of their closets of power into the movement, and then all of a sudden in 1996, boom, there is a drug. Yeah. These people can take the drug. But now that they've been welcomed into the movement, these are also people who never in their life have taken following orders from anybody else. And so these are the people who have come to kind of run it. And so then they lift off of the struggle and they take the mantle of the movement, quote unquote, with them. Um, and Mayor Pete is no, is no exception. And that's how you get, I mean, I'm sure McKinsey ranks very highly along with ExxonMobil and Raytheon and Boeing and Goldman Sachs on the human rights campaign, you know, great places to work if you're a homo list. And I'm sure they march in pride with their signs. And, you know, that's... Rainbow Visa cards. Yeah. Yep. The neoliberalism with the gay face is very similar to the neoliberalism with the feminine, so-called feminist face. Mm -hmm. And the, I think it's important for us to demarcate the, you know, gay liberation struggles and the wonderful work that ha did happen and continues to happen from mm -hmm. the 60s onwards and even beyond versus the politics of people who want to further create the divisions that um, I would say P is, is doing. <laughs> yeah. So in 2012, he becomes mayor of South Bend. And this is where we start to have a record that we can look at. Um, what does it look like when this person who we've spent some time talking about and this politics that we spent some time talking about um, runs a city and mayors in the United States for people who don't live in the United States who are listening tend to be fairly powerful uh, within their kind of jurisdiction. Mayors in the United States can do a whole lot on their own. They tend to control city budgeting. As in many deindustrializing cities, there are a lot of vacant and abandoned houses. And so in good old management consultant style, and Buttigieg actually describes this in his book as 
a classic example of data-driven management paying off, um, they decide that they are going to either repair or bulldoze a thousand of these vacant or abandoned houses within a thousand days. Um, this is also a moment when uh, a lot of economic development energy is being focused on downtown, and they're trying to prettify downtown South Bend to make downtown South Bend a great place to have your startup or to open a foofy restaurant or to uh, have real estate investment and speculation. Um, and the issue is, as this uh, BuzzFeed article reports, there were a lot of people out in the neighborhoods who wanted to have a better home or a rehabbed home to live in. According to BuzzFeed, they found a system working against them, uh, a city bureaucracy working against them, fines and penalties. Like they were they were not working with homeowners to bring homes up to code to rehab them. It was just like, oh, you can't get this up to code? Well, then, bam, we're going to bulldoze it. And so a lot of black and Latinx-owned property ends up being literally bulldozed by the city. Um, and there were suspicions, the article reports, that homes were targeted because they stood in the way of city-endorsed real estate development plans that stood to price out longtime area homeowners and renters. You know, before even getting into like the technicalities of it, right? You know, my first point of entry always is language, right? And you said his first act was to bulldoze houses, right? So he rolls in and he's rolling over people. And I think that when somebody, that's the sign they send just it's like, oh, I see where we're going with this. You know, it's just like sometimes, I, you know, you have, to, you have to take people at face value, right? And you don't even have to really get into the ins and outs. Like, really, that's the first thing you decided to do. You didn't like fix a hospital or like find some daycare or... You know, well, they also put 90 million into making downtown pretty for real estate investments. But then, you know, you bulldoze the houses out. Yeah, but when they put that $90 million in, I'm sure it's for like a wee work, right? Yeah, 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 of course. You know what I mean? And then, then what happens is in all of these things, you know, so you have people that are like, that have lived in communities for, you know, decades mm -hmm. and decades and decades, and they feel like strangers in their own home. And there's an environmental racism component to this as well that I mm -hmm. want to bring up, um, because I know this is something I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about, but when these buildings were demolished, um, there were worries about... Um, dust about lead paint um, in South Bend. This is according to reporting by CNBC. Uh, rates of lead poisoning are among the worst in the nation. Uh, nearly four in five of these homes that were being demolished were built before 1980 and had not been recently renovated. There's a lot of lead-based paint going on. Um, in some areas of the city's northwest, which is where most of the poor people and people of color live, more than a quarter of the children um, exhibited elevated levels of lead in their blood over the last decade. Um, and there's a quote from a local resident named Sean White who says, quote, how is he going to run the whole country if he can't get his city right first? I ain't never seen the dude tell him to chill with us for three or four days. Yeah, I think there are many layers to this. One of them being that millions of people uh, are still suffering from the, the housing crisis, uh, economic crisis from 2008. The last statistic I read it's about 9 million people who've had their homes either foreclosed upon or evicted. So that's a nationwide problem in which 80% of those people are Black and Latinx. Um, and places like Florida, places in the South, places that have had to suffer from this are still dealing with issues around vacant or unoccupied homes, etc. So there's plenty of unoccupied homes in which people could easily live and be present and have what I would call more free housing or more government-based housing. But then what you're describing is an even more absurd phenomenon in which 
people are being poisoned in the places that they live in. And this is not entirely mm -hmm. new. We see this with the financial cutbacks and austerity measures in Flint, Michigan, and the ways in which they allow for, in Flint, Michigan, Black working class families to be exposed to poisoned water. And subsequently, what you, you pointed to, which is lead poisoning, asbestos, other forms of occupational and or home-related uh, toxic substances can cause neurological damage to children, long-term damages to other people. And, and that is a form of not just environmental racism, but it's a way of uh, just creating a second-class citizenship of people who just want to, who should be able to live, breathe, drink water, and do basic things. And the fact that he is not only complicit in that act is, it's, I would call a criminal, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's a disservice to his residents, working-class, Black, or otherwise, who are being subjected uh, mm -hmm. to this housing inequality. And we see right now in Oakland uh, that Mothers for Housing are fighting for housing in, in the, the Bay Area. And that needs to be expanded vis-a-vis -vis efforts and initiatives. And uh, that struggle for housing mm -hmm. is going to be an ongoing struggle in the context of the U.S. You know, it's, it's fascinating you say that because, you know, on top of when you're talking about the housing crisis in 2008, mm -hmm. you know, I read somewhere that basically, you know, that was a depression. You know, while it was a recession for the country, it was a depression, you know, for Black people because... Mm -hmm. One of the only ways to really generate, you know, intergenerational wealth is through a home, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So you buy the home with the hopes that this thing is, you know, you're going to be able to pass it down and make a profit, you know, and then, you know, dig yourself out of it, you know. And when you target certain communities, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. for these, you know, for these kinds of things, mm -hmm. once again, you are, you know replicating the cycle that's been going on mm. for 400 years. Mm. And when you, when you say to me that you don't know that that's going to happen, I say you're lying. Mm. Mm -hmm. and well, what for me is, so I tried to also read about his housing plan <laughs> a little bit. And what he's framing as is this massive public investment. Is this we, his current we, housing plan as a presidential candidate? Exactly. Just to clarify, we, yeah. Yes, okay. as, a pre, as part of his presidential candidacy, because mm -hmm. in some ways to suggest or provide a plan that also works with capital is what a neoliberal would might do. But the extent to which, even in his own city, he wasn't able to actually provide you know, uniform, uh, full housing for his citizens. How can we trust him to do that at the level of the federal government? Like, right. And I mean, people still haven't been yeah. able to do that. Yeah. Of, because of racism. And you can be also honest. look at... <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Racism. And you can... I mean, you can... You when did look at the mayor people racism? Oh, we're, I think okay. we're, we're, we're there, we're there, we're and that's, okay. that's, I think, the, the main kind of theme mm -hmm. of, the, of the conversation with the rest of the episode. Just to say briefly, I think you could imagine thinking of a political figure who had come into a city in a difficult situation, mm -hmm. had been unable to fix everything, mm -hmm. but where you could point to a record of really fighting the forces that are trying to impoverish... Um, the residents of the city and really trying to do something different around housing and land. You think of mayors mm -hmm. like uh, Mayor Labumba of uh, Jackson, Mississippi, mm -hmm. who has been pioneering some really radical uh, and really interesting and really necessary and hopefully portable uh, ideas about um, housing cooperatives and um, kind of decommodifying housing at a municipal level and what can you do on a municipality. Mm -hmm. Now, if he were running for president, I would be very into it, even though I'm sure there are still many housing in Jackson, Mississippi that are not up to the standard that, mm -hmm. that people deserve to live in. Mm -hmm. 
But this is somebody, Mayor Pete is somebody who didn't even try. This is somebody where the yeah. entire plan is about generating higher real estate values downtown yeah. and generating gentrification and not about the goal of the plan is not to ensure um, safe and quality and affordable housing for the black and brown and poor and working class residents of South Bend. Well. And um, this is where we get into, um, I think, a place to transition into his record with the police. And there's a lot here. And I want to begin with another one of the first things he does as mayor, um, which is to uh, demand the resignation of Daryl Boykins, who had been the city's first black chief of police. And um, this uh, has been written up in The Intercept. It's really good reporting. The Intercept has done on Mayor Pete's mm -hmm. record uh, on policing writ large. And that's kind of the source that I've been using to research um, this record. And all of that is, again, linked in the show notes. Um, so um, Boykins ends up uh, rescinding his resignation. Uh, and then Buttigieg demotes him from being uh, the chief of police. Um, he has later admitted that this was a mistake. He called it my first serious mistake as mayor. Now, at the time, uh, Mayor Pete said he fired Boykins for his role in secretly recording some police phone lines. Um, but that recording system had actually been there since before Boykins took up the position. He ended up suing the city for racial discrimination and winning a $50,000 settlement. Um, now, there's a city employee named Karen DePape who listened in on the recordings and transferred the conversations to tapes. Um, and she said in 2012 that what she overheard in 2012 was the year that Mayor Pete became mayor, Pete, and not just Pete, um, mm -hmm. that what she overheard suggested very unethical behavior by police officers, including the use of racist language related to Boykins. Can you imagine? Oh, it's never been heard That's of shocked. ever before. Right. Um, she was the only person who it was thought had listened to significant portions of the recordings. And she was also fired by Mayor Pete for her part in this. And she won a $235,000 settlement. The story ended up uh, being reported out by the Young Turks, uh, which is a, a news outfit. Um, and they ended up reporting that what's on those tapes is white officers discussing how now that there's this new young mayor in town, they are going to uh, using uh, two of his big donors as go-betweens get him to fire the police chief. One officer is quoted on the recordings as saying, quote, it is going to be a fun time when all white people are in charge. Now, it's important to clarify that it was never alleged that Buttigieg was aware of this plan. Um, he was never, it, they, in fact, it is alleged by even Karen DePape that he was not aware that this was not something he was like planning on doing, but it's certainly something that these officers saw as being present in his politics and then does he end up firing the police chief yes he does um how do you not fire the first black police chief and not have it support white supremacy i don't understand how you know th th that's not possible you know and i think when you say that you know you're not aware of that then my question is then why aren't you aware of that right <laughs> right? Th th then that's my question. Okay, let's take it for conversation's sake. You're not aware of that. So I want to know, that, why aren't you aware of that? Because you're going to be mayor of all the people, and you understand, right? You understand the symbolism. You understand that Black and Brown people have a different relationship to the police, so that when you do this, this is going to re reverberate, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that, I got a problem. Mm -hmm. 
I have a lot of mixed feelings and complicated feelings about it because of, as an institution, the police are very problematic because they're there to protect the property of the elites. And as an institution in the U.S., uh, as they began in the 19th century, very much were about catching runaway slaves <laughs> and ensuring that people who were indebted could somehow pay off the people who they were indebted to, that that was fulfilled somehow and using mm -hmm. force and violence as part of the, the work that they do. And, and as we know, there's a, a very close link between people who have been part of the police, the fraternal police order, and the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, in fact, the current orange clown in office and the White House was endorsed <laughs> by the fraternal uh, order of police. That was as well as uh, the KKK. So these things are very much, they lie in the same bed. Um, and then there's also this other element, which is in the context of the post-civil rights movement, there's been a rise of Black police officers and Black prosecutors and et cetera. And uh, James, For James Foreman in Locking Up Our mm -hmm. Own goes into detail about that, that complicated history mm -hmm. between the rise of Black police officers who often do the work of white supremacy mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and what that means. Mm -hmm. um, and even with uh, Baltimore, the murder of Freddie Gray, mm -hmm. Like we're looking at a mostly mm -hmm. black situation. Well, at the same time, and this is where I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, this is absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 absolute uh, and very pointed racism that we see happening in this context and the context of uh, South Bend and this police fiasco goes to show the extent to which black people within these positions are also just not being respected, mm -hmm. honored, that now they can get away perhaps with much more mm -hmm. and that... Uh, there isn't an, an, a kind of transparent system to, and that they see Pete as their own. <laughs> they see him as fulfilling the policies that they want and within the context of the police system. There's something even deeper when we talk about liberals and the police, right? Mm -hmm. Because the liberals come in and one of the first things they always want to do is align themselves with law and order, mm -hmm. right? Because they want to be seen as also as tough, mm -hmm. right? Because liberals are, you know, supposed to be snowflakes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so the, one of the first things they do, they're like, you know, we're going to be like, you know, law and order. It's like, you know, Bill Clinton signing the crime mm -hmm. bill. And so this is where I really draw the line with a lot of liberals, mm -hmm. you know, and particularly, you know, a lot of white liberals and also Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, when you are given, that's why when I say, for instance, like, I can't trust them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And people are like, well, how can you say that? I was like, I've got empirical evidence. And the thing that no one, I mean, it, and it never works to shore up the cred with right-wing people. What this does is on the one hand, so you, what it does is it, it like, it just continues to push the discourse ever further to the right on issues of policing. And this is something that is true, I think, of Mayor Pete, not only on this issue of policing, but on so many others, where if you're in constantly trying to triangulate between um, the demands of the right and then um, whatever it is that you claim to want or support, you end up just moving the discourse ever further to the right over and over again because you never actually win. You're never going to make those people like you. And and just, sorry, I'm on a roll here. Then this connects in some way to this kind of neoliberal gay way of being because mm -hmm. it's like you're also, you're never going to make those people like you. Yeah. I mean, it just, like, you're never, it, it doesn't, you end up just selling out what it is that you claimed to be for entirely. And here's also my disconnect, for right? You never hear people on the right talking about, you know, reaching across the aisle, right? No. It's always the people on the left talking about reaching across the aisle. And it's always like, why do I need to step to them? Nope. You know what I mean? The reality is, it's just like, 
they're wrong. But there's somewhere in back of your little neoliberal mind that you need to placate these people. Mm-hmm. Right? And that is a real, real, real problem. Mm-hmm. And that's when you see it with somebody like, you know, like Mayor Pete and, you know, there was that video where he was talking to the school kids and he said, like, oh, the people that owned slaves didn't know what they were, what did he say? The, the, I believe he was referring to, he was talking about the, the, um, the framers of the Constitution who owned slaves mm-hmm. and uh, said that they, you know, even they had this kind of people who were so wise to set up this brilliant system of government could also have this blindness, right. you know, of not knowing that what they were doing mm-hmm. was was wrong. And the sound that you heard after that was mm-hmm. 7,000 historians' heads exploding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and the kids like nodding and going like this. The part that bugged me more than anything else, okay, fine. I'm okay, not okay, but it was like I've heard those kinds of arguments before. What really annoyed me is watching the white gays in my circle come to me and try to white explain to me what he meant by that. And I was like, really, girl? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're stepping to me to try to tell me what he meant. You're going to interpret his words. I said, I know what words mean. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, this is not new to me. You know what I mean? And for them, when I said to myself, I was like, wow, look at this. Like this person that was like, you know, at the eagle with me. And they're turning around and they're trying to convince me that what I'm hearing and what I'm reading isn't really happening in the truth of God. Well, part of the problem is a revisionism that works in the interest of humanizing white supremacists, slave owners who profited off the black, backs of black people, and also white indentured servants. Um, mm-hmm. Like I'll, yes, I'll say that. And the, on, on the land of indigenous mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, let's be honest, there, right? I go on and on. Right. But, mm-hmm. And I think beyond that, because I, I think that it's also important, not just to talk about the ways in which um, people or mayors like Pete um, fulfill the work of white supremacy through racism and policing, but also how, uh, particularly with Mayor Pete's record, how he's also, um, uh, his policies as a mayor were not in uh, support of migrants. So in the context of Trump, uh, or I said his name, uh, the orange clown in the White House, (laughs) uh, the 45th uh, being president, um, it's also come with a a kind of surge of uh, ice raids, a surge in which uh, migrants or people who are perceived to be migrants can suddenly be under attack, and as well as the kind of uh, steroids of the alleged wall that's being built um, on the border. And some ways, uh, some cities have basically tried to reverse some of those far-right policies by saying, hey, we'll become a sanctuary city. We, as a city, will ensure that there are safe spaces in which ice raids won't just happen, that people who are uh, migrants can feel secure and safe. Of the major cities in Indiana, South Bend, where he is a mayor, is not one of the sanctuary cities in that state. For me, that is a problem. If you want to be in solidarity with migrants, if you want to be in solidarity with people who have faced the tutelage under current uh, presidential regime, then that actually means having policies and efforts that can be in, can, can can say we defend migrants, because mm-hmm. otherwise you're just supporting and you're complicit in these policies. Right. Um... So Mayor Pete's kind of record on um, policing and race uh, came under 
new scrutiny in as he began to run for president. And then in June of 2019, as the campaign was kind of in full swing. And I just want to pause and say that the fact that this didn't end his presidential campaign mm. is a discredit, enormous discredit to uh, white liberals. Um, not that we didn't know that white liberals were bad, but this is really... This is just more evidence. So in June 2019 uh, in South Bend, there is a um, fatal police shooting, another extrajudicial murder, um, this time of a man uh, named Eric Logan. And you will be shocked to know that the police officer's dash and body cam wasn't activated. So there's actually no video of this mm. incident and no way to tell what happened beyond the words of the officer. Mm. Um the officer claims that uh, after responding around 3.30 a.m. local time to reports of a man reportedly breaking into cars, um, that Logan flashed a knife when approached and that uh, that's when the officer, his name was O'Neill, Officer O'Neill opened fire. Um, but given that neither the body camera nor the dash camera were turned on, and they should have been, um, the uh, local black community and local progressives were enraged, um, and this uh, prompted calls for a federal investigation. And this... Uh, Mayor Pete's record with the black community on this issue has been reported uh, in BuzzFeed News by Brianna Sachs. And again, the link is in the show notes for people who want to read the whole article. Um, now, Mayor Pete um, skipped a vigil at the scene of the shooting and didn't make any public remarks about the incident until the Wednesday after uh, when he gave a speech to the city's all-white new police cadet class oh. about the importance of transparency and turning on body cameras. Um Oliver Davis, who is a member of the South Bend Common Council and a veteran local black activist, said, well, you know, he talked to the media before talking to the family. He skipped the family vigil full of black residents, and then he gave a speech to the police. So you tell me how you think that went over. Um, Logan's mother, Shirley Newbill, uh, said um, that her meeting with the mayor had been brief and frustrating. He didn't say nothing to me, she said. Um, later at a rally, he said, uh, Mayor Pete, one of his campaign rallies, he said, uh, well, it's very sad what happened in South Bend. He said, it's as if one member of our family died at the hands of another. And what? even as an outside process works to determine what happened, we already know why such wounds are surfacing and why our whole community hurts, end quote. And I wow. think that is even... I, I mean, I obviously was researching an episode called about a show called Bad Gays, so I knew I was not a fan of this person, uh -huh. but that that took even me back that quote one member of our family killed by another there is always this kind of false equivalence that you know that's always being created between the police and the community right as if they are in this adversarial relationship you know and the reality is it's like no you work for me mm. right right it's like you work for me I don't work for you, you work for me, but somehow this thing has been set up as it's like, it's me against you. Mm. And when he goes there and he says something like, um, make sure your body cams are on, and he doesn't make any sort of appeal to morals or virtues. Don't shoot people. You know, yeah, don't you know, try not to murder anybody. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like when you don't address the systemic issues that that are that are that are prevalent in this, you know, in the society, and you're asking to be a leader, you know, you're asking to be a leader, and you don't address these sort of like really root systemic. And this is the problem. What I find with this is why I think that we're never going anywhere, because white people never call a thing a thing. 
right? So when he says um, about the uh, um, both members of our family are hurting, right? It's just like you've drawn an equivalence, right, between these two things, and they're completely not equivalent. Yeah, I would also add that part of what I find disturbing about his entire behavior around this incident is that there's a failure to recognize Black humanity. There's a way in which he's not acknowledging how there's an entire system, not just the police, but white vigilantes and the KKK, far-right groups that hunt and murder Black people and other people of color like we're praying. And then even just the sinister language, insidious language is saying, um, evoking this idea that there's this familial connection between the police and these this black person is very it's very similar to the ways in which slave masters <laughs> evoked familial mm -hmm. connections mm -hmm. uh, in the 18th 19th century in the U.S. context and in many cases oh, they were right. because they yeah. sexually assaulted mm -hmm. black women uh, slaves and it's just. So this, this, this. Which police I, I, are never involved in sexual assault. Definitely not. And so, so there, there's so many layers to why this is so problematic. It goes to show that he isn't even pointing to or thinking about the core politics of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like people are still trying to like fight for the fact that our lives do matter, and he he can't acknowledge that. <laughs> So he then, can't acknowledge our lives. So then one yeah. of the responses to this shooting is that they set up a series of eight meetings, community meetings with the local board of public safety, which is the police oversight board uh, with community advisory groups. And uh, he skipped all but one of the eight to attend presidential campaign events and fundraisers as the intercept reported. Um, he was protested at many of his campaign events by local black lives matter groups who were taking the lead of black lives matter South Bend, which was basically calling on him to, prioritize dealing with the situation in the city that he was mayor of over attending uh, campaign fundraisers. Um, Black Lives Matter protesters protesting ahead of a debate in Iowa um, were shouted over by Buttigieg supporters who were shouting chants of USA, USA, USA. Wow. Yeah. They went full nationalism. They went full nationalism. <laughs> um, so then uh, responding to this, the campaign uh, put out um, responding to this, the campaign put out a series of uh, statements or plans that were attempt that were try attempts to recover his standing with uh, black voters who are an important Democratic primary constituency, uh, who are probably the reason why he, I predict, will not be the presidential nominee because, because I. We're homophobic. But. Well, that's so the first the first attempt is they put out a statement, they recycle a racist lie that originates in the aftermath of the success of the anti-gay marriage Prop 8 referendum in California in 2008. Um, at that time, um, a lot of gay groups, which had basically been um, thought that they had an easy win on their hands and organized themselves poorly, attempted to excuse their and their consultants' failures to respond to that organization by saying, well, you know, it was just this elevated uh, African-American voter turnout to support the first black president. And as we all know, you know, it's an uncomfortable truth we have to talk about, but there's this increased rate of homophobia among African-Americans, and that's not played out um, in any uh, research or study or polling. Uh, the other thing that uh, they do is they put out this document, which is called the Plan uh, for Black America. Um, this is a set of policies which includes things like, you know, you get 
a discount on your student loans if you start a business in a minority-owned area, stuff like that. Um, and what they do is they, on their list of 400 um, prominent African-American activists and elected officials who had supported this plan, they put um, the names of people who, some of whom had endorsed other presidential candidates, some of whom claimed that they had never read the plan. The way that they got people's endorsement for this plan was by sending out an email saying, if you don't respond within such and such a time, we're going to put you on as an endorser, which is not how you, which is not how you do this. And like, again, I just can't believe that this issue went away. They, they faked black support for this plan. Well, and this has thing. just been, this they has just been him. ignored in the media. They love him. They want him. And they, you know, and the reality is at the end of the day, they don't really care about our issues. You know, they just don't care. And you can see that from 400 years of neglect. So why should they start now? You know what I mean? So he's pushing the corporates, you know, he's pushing the corporate line and, you know, and he gives them a feel good story because, you know, well, also, I would add that it's absolutely disingenuous to assume that Black people are anti-gay as a monolith when there are Black gay people. And then beyond that, there's an entire history, particularly if we think about the ascension of the Kabahee River Collective, which is a Black feminist, uh, mostly lesbian and bisexual women collective of people who were Marxist, like socialists, left-leaning, who were part of the, a civil rights liberation struggle where they were not, they were being excluded from the mainstream gay LGBT struggle. And they're like, well, we're Black and we're queer too, and we're here. And many of those people are still alive today, Barbara Smith being one of them, and they're doing amazing work. And so to make an assumption about that is, I would say that that's wrong. And then beyond that, if even if we look at popular culture, because we were talking about queer culture and clubbing and stuff like that before, one of the major shows right now, Pose, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Bill Porter, Billy Porter, um, Angelica Ross, who's a transgender activist and actress on the show of Pose, had a, a LGBT gala to bring together some of the presidential candidates. This happened some months ago. And so, you know, the people are actually do black people and all, all of these people are black <laughs> that I'm mentioning. They're doing that work. Just yesterday, so so the, so this this issue um, has been sort of dogging Mayor Pete throughout his campaign. And just yesterday, at a high dollar fundraiser in Chicago, a protester interrupted Mayor Pete, um, identifying as a queer person of color, a queer uh, non-binary person of color. Mm -hmm. Said people are dying in our community. Um, she was, uh, or they were, challenging Mayor Pete about not attending uh, those meetings. And Mayor Pete said, "Quote: I've got to ask you to respect the format." Oh no. So then the protester responded, and I quote, um, I need you to respect me and my question and respect the people of South Bend, and then went on to kind of reframe the question. Um, and Mayor Pete replied, quote, sometimes love is not expressed by interruption. Sometimes love is expressed in a different way and repeated his call to respect the format. And I think there is... There is contemporary white neoliberal liberalism in a nutshell. The most important thing, some people are crying out for their lives, yeah. and the important thing is respect the format. I got a couple of things here. A number one, the respect the format. First of all, you don't own the facts and you don't own the rules of engagement. Right? So whose format? This is the format I'm choosing right now. Right? So when you say respect the format, you are imposing, right, this white supremacist system on you know, on these people, you know, down in there. And I had this moment, I was writing this article about a, a bigger, bigger story. And I remember coming back to this, like tracing from, um, from the, the civil rights movement. And I got to the, the, the 
the gay, the gay, the gay rights movement. And I, I, and I landed on that thing where, you know, their, their tagline was love is love. And I really thought about that, you know, for a really long time. And I thought to myself, mm, not all love is the same. And whether my love is different or not is really not the point here. Right? Points of, dis of discrimination don't have anything to do with my sameness to you. Right? It's absolutely the opposite, right? It's because I'm different from you that you have to respect me, right? So when they are, even in their language, you realize it's, a, it's, it's the language of assimilation, right? Which for me is the language of contrition, right? And the People that have bow the your most head, to bow your head, wait in line, and then you get to ask me the question. And I remember I was working at a major gay group when um, a Latinx trans activist named Genesette Gutierrez, who had been invited to a White House LGBT activists event, mm -hmm. interrupted and heckled President Obama about uh, deportations and the deportations and treatment of trans women, uh, who at that time, as now, uh, are often being incarcerated in privately run facilities, being misgendered. And uh, the reaction of all of the nice white gay liberals in my office was, this is the first president we've ever had who's done anything for us, and how dare she stand up and interrupt, and how dare, like, and I'm thinking, and these are people, the, here's how far the disconnect goes. These are people who would actually be able to narrate for you what has become now the kind of standard gay left liberal narrative where you you sort of performatively narrate and you performatively narrate the fact that you have like oh like you know it was trans women of color who started stonewall and sylvia and marcia and they know all of these names and it's like this is literally today's sylvia how you treat her how you think about her when she's saying the inconvenient thing or doing the inconvenient thing is how you would have behaved then. And it just goes to show how far right this whole movement has moved, where that interruption was perceived in that social circle, which is very much the Mayor Pete social circle, as we kind of discussed, this kind of a-gay, uh, gay nonprofit, official gay rights world, that like that the most important thing is to respect the format and like basically, you know, people like that, in quotes, yeah, should should just take the sort of little bits that they're given. And I think I would say also beyond that. What's particularly disturbing about him saying um, sometimes love is not expressed by interruption, I guess I would want to um, share a quote by a good gay, um, African-American writer James Baldwin, where his interpretation of love is, quote, love does not begin and end the way we seem to think it does. Love is a battle. Love is a war. Love is a growing up. And I would argue that he needs to grow up. Yeah. <laughs> he yep. needs to grow up and actually with the times to understand the, the absolute concern that what people are describing, black folk who are being murdered, people in his community who don't feel like they're being fully represented, um, they can't just be pushed aside and pushed away. Right. For actual liberation to happen, that does mean challenging the structure of that be. And that meant for slaves in the 19th century in the Americas, basically escaping, running away, that was technically illegal, which is why they created the fugitive aid. It was illegal. 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 And moving your body so that you could be free was illegal. Today, activism is putting your body on the line to say, we are going to protect migrants. We are going to ensure that um, people are not being shot. We're going to interrupt a speech. That is a, a very mild act of all things 
do. Of all the things so possibly mild. do. So mild. And there was, a, there's, there, there was an image, I remember, that was taken by, I think, a reporter who was attending this LGBT town hall from the back. And I thought this was an image that just summed up the last 30 years of the gay rights movement. Mm. And in the image you saw uh, black trans women who had not been allowed to ask a question, mm. who were being removed from the venue by police. And then up on stage, you see Pete Buttigieg and Anderson Cooper, mm. two epitome A gays, mm. standing there looking just like deers in the headlights, like looking out. And what you realize, what I realized is like, the like the literally the lights blind you see you see the lights are like blinding them in the image and they can't quite see what's going on and they so that's why they look a little confused yeah. and that's what it's like these it's like they are they're just blinded yeah. and and I don't it's which and it's not they have chosen to be blinded yeah. um like it's like they have chosen to keep themselves innocent of or ignorant of these these realities for black people for working mm-hmm. people and then that kind of wraps into um the place that I want to kind of conclude this conversation by spending a little time on, um, which is not to move the conversation away from race because race is an integral part of all of these policies that I want to talk about, but to talk a little race bit about deal breaker also. But to talk a little <laughs> bit about the the policy platform yeah. that Mayor Pete has presented as a presidential candidate mm-hmm. and what his kind of function has been in the race. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, and Mac, you pointed out earlier, you said, you know, I operate by instinct. I sort of knew this person and I knew this is somebody with no convictions. This is somebody who was just going to do kind of whatever it was. So in 2018, at the beginning of the presidential campaign, um, when he, uh, or before I think he even was officially running, but when he was sort of beginning to think about running, uh, he said on Twitter, there were people who were trying to heckle people as to whether they supported Medicare for all. Um, and he said, and I'm quoting here, I, Pete Buttigieg, politician, do henceforth and forthwith declare affirmatively and indubitably into the ages that I do favor Medicare for all as I do favor any message measure that would help get all Americans covered, end quote. Um, and then he ends up like, now I have to go back to being mayor, but like, fine, yes, I agree with you, absolutely, whatever. Um, and um, then uh, um, in over the course of the summer of 2019, Uh, he emerged as a kind of key uh, attacker or a key kind of arguer against um, policies that have been put forward by some of the presidential candidates, most notably Senator Sanders, um, that would uh, bring single-payer health care to the U.S. And now he claims he was never in favor of single-payer health care. And he's gotten a lot of, spent a lot of time and energy at the debates trying to carve himself out this sort of moderate position and oppose these plans. Um, and when he does that, just as when he opposes uh, things like uh, free higher education or student debt reduction, um, he ends up kind of bringing right-wing talking points about whether it's people, I trust people to know what they want to do with their health care. And it's like, yes, but you have never sat there looking at the like healthcare choices that are available for you and your family and had to make the decision between, okay, so this year am I going to have a healthcare plan where – I can't really afford to put gas in the car, but if I get sick, I won't go bankrupt or I can pay for the gas. But then if I do get sick, I will go bankrupt. Like you've just never, so like that to you is meaningful choice when that to most people is not meaningful choice. Um, and they just bringing attacks from, a generation of politics that he claims to want to leave behind because so much of his message is about generational transformation that, that, if you want to leave behind this generation of failed Democratic Party politics, of failed neoliberalism, of failed attempts to move to the center, of two presidents, Clinton and Obama, who failed on every issue, on every account, to change the direction of the United States in any meaningful way whatsoever, 
anything good they did was tinkered around, tinkering around the edges and easily reversed, and they collaborated in a whole lot of bad. And if you are claiming that you want to actually change that direction, if you're just going to repeat these stale talking points um, about choice and about competition and about freedom, um, all of which are talking points that are literally invented by Republican strategists in the 1980s and the 1990s to argue against the kind of social democratic measures that people want to bring back, you're not representing any kind of transformation. And that's why, in a way, it's more insidious to me than even someone like Joe Biden, because Biden is just of this neoliberal era. And Buttigieg, if he won, would be in some way a kind of reendorsement of it or a, or the it, it, its emergence into a new era. So just like I was saying before, like, I know that queen, right? <laughs> and you know how I know that queen? Because she's on Debate Club, right? Yep. And, and how Debate Club works is just like, oh, this is what we're talking about. Pick a side and defend that side, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't actually come from any place of actual conviction, mm -hmm. right? It's just about winning the argument. And so here is my biggest disconnect between the mayor peaks of the world and like people like us, is that I believe in justice. And justice is about right and wrong. People like Mayor Pete believe in power. And power is all about winning and losing. Where you've got nothing to lose, doesn't matter, right? Like, mm -hmm. you yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah, I think also what I would add to this is that there's just been a massive polarization between those who've benefited from the economic crisis and those who continue to be uh, dealing with the pitfalls of it. If we think about some of the major issues that have come up in the recent presidential campaign, Talking points, student loan debt, and why people want debt forgiveness. There's a 1.5 trillion dollar debt um, in the U.S. Right? Yeah, it's, it's bigger, bigger than, than the, mortgages, and right? it's and this is like one of the many debts that have occurred, including medical debt, etc., personal debt. Mm -hmm. People are living off of a credit card system to survive and to have what appears to be on his part an immunity from the suffering <laughs> of millions of Ooh. of people living in the United States. Is is maybe not devious act, but it's just cold hearted. And you want to pose the continuation <laughs> of that suffering yeah. as freedom, yeah. like you want, like it's 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 like um it's and Aurelian. Want, and his supporters want me to like him because he's gay, like that. <laughs> I think partially. I mean, yeah, I that, think there definitely was a like, yeah. This is our moment. Get behind us. It's just like there's a disconnect here, bro. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and then he's technically so for me. What's so so odd about him is. He's technically a millennial. When I think about myself as a millennial, as someone who has been radicalized in a particular way, one of the major turning points is the U.S. invasion in Iraq and Afghanistan and how when that happened in 2003, uh, my entire liberal arts college basically, or not all of it, but most of it, went to the Burnside Bridge in Portland, Oregon and occupied it. And people put their little bodies on the lines. People... and. and there's so much activism that's been happening over the past like 15, 20 years. And to not acknowledge that there is a kind of financial gap and that people are hungry for an alternative, and, which is why you have the popularity of people like someone like like Bernie, and I, I support, um, for yeah. full disclosure, <laughs> I'm biased, like I support Bernie Sanders and what he's calling for more so than I would ever support someone like uh, Pete because his politics and the class he comes from, as well as the class he's standing for, has nothing to do with me. 
And the class he stands for, I think, is clear by the financing strategy of his campaign, where they're accepting high-dollar donations, they're accepting bundlers. Uh, they were very reluctant to release lists of who their bundlers were, just as they were very reluctant to release lists of who his clients actually were at McKinsey. Um, when they did end up releasing that, uh, some reporting has come out that he may have been involved in a bread price-fixing scandal in Canada at McKinsey. So. I'm sure there's some unsavory names in the bundlers list as well. And he's referring to these donors as investors, which again, to go back to this question of language, I think is really important and fascinating because um, what are they investing in? When you invest, you expect a return. What do they think they're going to get? They obviously think they're going to get something. And so when billionaires collect in a wine cave and spend thousands of dollars on tickets and they're investing in the success of this candidate, what is it that they're investing in but I, I would and this is where we have to think about power yeah at the end of the day his positionality is someone who has power and has the power to make decisions and and what we have seen the evidence for is to ruin lives yeah <laughs> is, 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 is that is the critique it is not the critique about who you decide to love how you identify what your gender orientation is etc is like what is the power that you hold who are you supporting and how does that get exercised to cause real damage and there's plenty of evidence for that, and that's the, that's the point of interest. People's decisions define their character, right? And when I see someone like him, when you're not willing to put yourself on the front line, then guess what? You can't be in the top seat, right? Mm -hmm. So if you didn't put yourself out there, you know what I mean? And there's like, you know, trans people of color, you know, really living out loud you know, making it possible for you to even, you know, run for president. You've got no love for them, right? I got a problem with that. Because you know what? You can't take the, you know, all the good things without actually having exerted any energy. And this is where maybe imagination is really important. Can we, I would love a socialist gay utopia <laughs> where people yes. could just be able to share responsibility where there would be hierarchies it would just and, sure. and this this is he's not on that plane <laughs> but i just the, the just, last the, thing i said since we're in berlin right i'll just yeah. bring this back to berlin and this is one of those instinctual moments for me because years and years ago there was this thing on grinder about people that were taking their grinder profile pics you know at the um the whole look, the, the Holocaust Memorial. The Holocaust And when I saw that douchebag picture of Mayor Pete standing in the in the memorial and posing, posing on his husband's posing, Instagram. And then his posing goes, that guy. Yeah. Like the, not the husband. Even, that's the yeah, husband's Not even really not even guy. having any kind of, you know, stripping it of all context. I was just like, you're a douchebag. And that's the, the, the final comment that I'll make and the way I'll bring this episode to a close is so at one point during the campaign, they released one of their policy platforms and it was the LGBT policy platform and it was called Becoming Whole. And, you know, gay Twitter had a nice laugh about that name. Yeah. Um, but I do actually think that there is, you know, as I said, there are kind of wrong ways to be gay and gay ways to be wrong. And one particular gay way to be wrong is this kind of, a gay subjectivity where really you require this kind of power and this kind of state recognition to conceive of yourself as whole. And then in your strive, in your struggle to become whole, whatever else gets in the way, it doesn't matter. It's all kind of, it all comes back to, it all comes back to the, the struggle of that individual person to 
to achieve power. And that's what I think we see in his biography. That's what I think he presents to us as a presidential candidate. And um, this episode is coming out before the Iowa caucuses. So hopefully uh, our friends uh, and neighbors uh, who and listeners who live in the United States can uh, talk to their friends, can talk to their family, can spread the word about this guy, and hopefully we don't have to face down uh, seeing this person in meaningful political office. Thank you, Mac. Thank you, Edna, so much uh, for joining us for this, I think, really rich and digressive and and interesting conversation about a lot of things. I want to ask if either of you have uh, stuff coming up that our listeners might be interested in or could like find or access. Uh, Edna, there's your fabulous podcast, again, called Decolonization in Action. But Yeah, if you are interested in learning more about decoloniality, I have a Decolonization in Action podcast that I've run with my co-host, uh, Christina Comer. And if you're in the Berlin area, I am, along with my collaborator, Nena Anahuya, we will be having an exhibition in Berlin on the 14th of February that opens at the Alpha Nova Cultura Galerie in Kreuzberg. Um, so please check that out. And um, hmm, I'm in a bit of a transition phase at the moment <laughs> where I'm transitioning from a place of fashion to a place of art. But my first project, actually, is I'm writing a one-man show for myself based on um, the radical queer march that we had here in Berlin and how they called the cops on the Palestinians. Hmm. And, <laughs> and it's all sort of like that's the, the nexus of this story that I talk about, the, you know, the gay rights, you know, the gay liberation movement going from a place where um, black and brown people were rioting against the police to white people calling the police. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of like a full circle moment. You can follow the show on Twitter at Bad Gays Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow Edna on Twitter at Jacobin Noir. You can visit us at patreon.com slash badgayspod to sign up to support the show so that we can make more special episodes like this. Um, and I also want to announce that we are recording the third regular season of our show uh, in late February. And so look for those episodes to air starting uh, sometime in March of 2020. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>